Hello, and welcome to another Meta Media Group production of On Purpose Magazine, featuring interesting, inspiring, educational, and entertaining stories, discussions, and interviews of purpose, with purpose, on purpose. Hello, everybody. This is J.W. Nigerian with On Purpose Magazine, and today we're here with the amazing Billy Hayes. How are you doing, Billy? Pretty well, thank you. Hey, I really appreciate you coming on today. Um, if for anybody who doesn't know Billy, uh, you may know the movie and the book, Midnight Express. Uh, Billy was not the director of the movie or, um, or an, an extra or an actor in the piece. He was the actual person that uh, went to prison uh, for four pounds of hashish in 1970. I, as I always uh, say, I'm, I'm the idiot who was caught at the airport with all the hash taped to his body, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it's amazing to have you today. Um, you know, I, I do always take time to, to go over the story, you know, to refresh and, and go over the story a little bit. And it's just been amazing rereading some of this stuff because it's, you know, it just, um, there's so much great information that you have in your book, and we'll get to go through all that. Um, but just for people who don't know Midnight Express, um, the book was published uh uh what in was it 70 in the early 70s or mid 70s no, in, yeah yeah in 19 february of 77 i think it actually came out right and by that time you were actually arrested in in, in istanbul turkey in 1970 for strapping hashish to your body and thinking that it was going to be an easy out no security right right, right. I, I i got busted in 1970 at the istanbul airport with two kilos of uh Hash, which is marijuana, same thing, different name, same plant. And right. Spent the next five years in prison and then got really desperate and very lucky and was able to escape off an island and a rowboat in a storm one night and then rake my way back to New York. And, of course, when I stepped off the plane at Kennedy, there was a press conference with 100 reporters asking questions. What's it feel like to be home? I don't know. I just got here. I haven't seen my mom. It never stopped, and it led to a book and then a film and spun my story into the universe, and it's still spinning in so many bizarre ways. It blows my mind. Yeah, we have some really wild stuff to talk about on that, some stuff that's coming up uh, with um, with, uh, an amazingly, and a a ballet, I think, or something like that. We just, Wendy and I, my wife and I just got back from London. We were there for two weeks. They did the Midnight Express Ballet at the National uh, Theatre a huge 2,500-seat classical old English theater. It was just amazing to see a ballet version of, you know, all these different iterations of my story, I guess, from, from life to a book to a movie to a locked-up-abroad version TV show, which was pretty amazing, too, to this, you know, now this ballet. Uh, all my New York friends were like, ballet, what are you kidding? Did they make you wear a tutu or you dancing in the show? It's like, I don't know, guys. It's, you know, but they did an incredible, you know, ballet's so expressive. It's so emotional. And if nothing else, my story is emotional. It's sort of a classic Greek uh, tragedy structure, you know, young man goes out into the world seeking fame and fortune, falls into a very deep hole, and just barely gets out. And for me, getting out was the weird part, because prison was strange, but stepping off the plane and becoming this little mini-celebrity was, that was really bizarre. You know, I liked it, it was nice to be free, but it was a very strange transition back into life. Yeah, and let's kind of go back a little bit. Um, you know, I, I know you've told the story a, a zillion, and this is a zillion and one times. But you know, to get the feeling of the fact that um, in Turkey, you, you go to you, you go to a prison in Turkey, and let me just—I'm going to back up just a bit mm-hmm. because I'm sure you've heard this is 
even a zillion and two times, and that is everybody has their own personal story who had either seen the movie or read the book at that right. time. And I'm no different. I was uh, in the Navy, and I had seen the movie, and uh, and it really affected me because it's a, it was you know it was well done. Oliver Stone. Right. I mean, it's a it's a very powerful movie and made a big powerful statement, even and though Alan not all of it was true. Yeah. I'm sorry. Hey, I say Alan Parker's an amazing director, and Brad gave his heart and soul to uh, to the film. So yeah, no. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So it, yeah, so it's a, it made amazing impact, obviously, just as a movie. But then I found myself. Um, doing some R&R down in Cartagena, Colombia, which is well-known for Coke mm-hmm. and pot mm-hmm. and everything else. Sure. I'm walking along the beach with a friend of mine, um, and I see four of my buddies laying on a towel on the beach, some four of my shipmates. So, of course, we mosey on to say hello. We walk up to them, and we're just sitting there talking to them on their towel, and four um, federales or police, and, you know, they wore camouflage gear and, and held uh, semi-automatic weapons, came up mm-hmm. and started yelling and screaming in, you know, in what can only be said as Spanish that uh, one year of Spanish in high school did not work with. Right. But uh, so they start screaming and yelling. They flipped up the towel, and there's a little bag of pot there. And all I could think of was your movie. <laughs> That's it. I just knew I was going to be eating bugs off the floor, you know, dirt head to toe and, and, right, I'll write, I'll write and wearing rags. <laughs> And it, it scared the crap out of me. Luckily, twenty bucks got me out of that. But right. well, um, I'm, sh- I'm sure you've heard this story countless times, right? In various versions, yes. And that's one of the reasons why I think Midnight Express affected people because it hit the zeitgeist of the time, and virtually everybody's gone through customs. And you know, whether you have something strapped to your body or not, there's still that weird feeling. And we all know, you know it's a big, wide world out there. You never know where you can step into a hole. So everybody can relate to it in one way or another. So, so, stepping back, what made you think? I, I, was just, I just went over the first chapter again because I wanted to go through the experience with you mm-hmm. about when you thought it was just really not a big deal, and then you came across all those, uh, you know, um, officials and went, well, "Oh crap, this could be it." Well, the, I mean, thing what, we, the thing we need to talk about also, even before answering that question, is the sure. fact that you know, Midnight Express. When I wrote it, I stepped off the plane on Friday afternoon, and by Monday, I was writing about it. But I'd made three trips to Istanbul prior to getting arrested. I smuggled hash back and forth three times. It was my That's fourth. what I was going to ask you. What yes. made you think you could do it? Because I'd done it three times, and I made it work, and because I was young and dumb and ridiculously invincible, as we all are that young, and because I wasn't right. thinking about anybody except myself, as in like the consequences of my actions, which when I finally discovered what they were, it... Again, prison probably the worst and the best thing that ever happened to me. It sort of forced me to grow up and to accept the fact that thing, actions have consequences. And you know, for me, the consequence was not only have I screwed up my own life, but now everybody who loves me is suffering every day while I'm in jail. That was a right. pop consequence. But prior to that fourth trip, you know, it was easy. And again, I I didn't have any moral qualms about smuggling marijuana. I mean, it's legal now in several states here, and it will be everywhere else, hopefully very soon, and get all these people out of prison, but that's a whole other topic. But as far as I'm concerned, my fourth trip, I was just stupid. The PLO had hijacked and blown up the first of the jets out in the Jordanian desert a month mm-hmm. before I got arrested. So all the airport security that's so common now, it was just beginning then. And what they had at the airport was people went through customs and didn't get searched. They searched people at the airplane, which... 
I really wasn't aware of until the last moment, and I looked out the window of the bus, and I had all this hash tape to my body, and there it was. And that was literally the my whole life before and after that moment. That was the turning point in my life. Yeah. Uh, just once you once once you're on the on your knees and there's guns pointing at you, yeah. uh, it, you pretty much figure that you're done. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, the point of this is that yes, I'd done this before. So when I got arrested the fourth trip, it was like the sky fell on my head. But it's not that like I didn't know this couldn't happen. It's just I knew I was so young and invincible and that wouldn't happen. But you know, right, of course it did. Well, I'm, and I'm but sure you were in home, denial to, too, right? I mean, when you when when you even when you got caught, there was probably some inkling in your head that said, "Okay, uh, this is going to turn out okay, and I'm going to oh, get out of here." Years. <laughs> for, for years, for years. There you go. My first reaction, looking at the window of the bus, was, "This can't be happening." I denied reality. This can't be happening. This can't be happening to me. But yes, of course it is. You know, for the first year, I didn't really even learn Turkish, just other than numbers and stuff. You know, when you're dealing with commerce, but uh, thinking, "I'm I'm not going to be here that long." And then after a while, I realized I just might be. But when I got home and wrote the book, you were talking about the first chapter. I couldn't, I couldn't admit to the Turkish government when I was arrested that this is my fourth trip, and certainly I couldn't admit to the United States government, U.S. when I came home because it was right. 1975 and this ridiculous war on drugs was at its height, and I right. couldn't even you, write Nathan. about it in my book. In the book, I had to write. This was my first trip. You know, I wanted to write about the other trips. And my lawyer at the time, he said, well, let me get this straight. You want to write down that you've made three prior trips to Turkey, brought hash back, and sold it to the United States. Is that correct? I said, yes. He said, I have one more question. Are you out of your mind? You can't say that. Legally, you can't say that. So I couldn't write that in the book which was uh, difficult for me because I had to, like, not say what the truth was well, to that degree that I'd made it before. You know, as far as the prison's concerned, everything else is pretty much as true as you can make it when you combine right. five years of people, places, things, and feelings into whatever it is, 200 pages or whatever <laughs> the book was. But I couldn't admit that this is my, my, not my first time over there. So I had a little different sense of things than the first chapter would lead to believe. And uh, you know, I, I went over the book again because I remember the, the movie, and uh, and from what I've read, the movie obviously took a di- took a different course. Uh, there they was made a, a lot of license changes. taken yeah. from the actual book itself. Right. And I I've, I've heard through the grapevine, or I've read that um, two things um, that you, uh, you you weren't necessarily you know. The movie was done really well. I think you, you, you would agree with that. Right. But you weren't uh, happy about some of the changes. Well, I guess one of the things was they never showed your escape. And I, there was a, a, and also a scene where you actually killed somebody, which wasn't necessarily true. Right. right. Well, and biggest... also that you were really kind of mad at the Turks in the movie, and that is not necessarily how you feel. Are That's these... one of my biggest problems with the film. I mean, again, Alan Parker, Brad, they all did great work, and... The biggest problem for me, I missed the rowboat because I escaped off an island in a storm, and literally that gave me back my life and my sense right. of self. I got myself busted. I got myself out. They didn't have it in the film. As a filmmaker myself now and as a writer, I understand why they didn't, the cost, the expense, the time. As Alan said, Billy, what 45 minutes of the film do you want to cut out to put in your escape? The audience has had enough. Let them out of the damn theater, which he's probably correct. But I missed my rowboat. It gave me back my life, literally <laughs> taking my life back in my hands. And... 
my biggest problem is you don't see any good Turks at all, and it creates this overall impression that all Turks are terrible, that Istanbul's a terrible place, you should never go there. That's not true. We all know that's not true. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. there are political leanings and Greeks and Armenians, and, you know, Turkey's got enemies here, but that's all politics. The people... Right, I'm Armenian. I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to hate the Turks. I, I understand uh, that, but again... I, I have Turks that are is, friends. I, I, I know what you're talking about. It's all people, but there's politics, and politics, that's a whole other issue, but people are people, and I love Istanbul. It's an amazing city. I didn't like the prison. I didn't like the guards, and I don't like their legal system. But that's probably going to be true. Any country in the world you get arrested in, you won't like the prison, the guards, or the legal system. But mm-hmm. it is what it is. So that's my biggest problem. And, you know, it really hurt Turkey in so many ways. Their tourism dropped 95%. And to this day, when people mentioned, if you mentioned uh, Turkey or Istanbul, it's like, oh, no, Midnight Express, oh, my God, I'll never go there. Well, no, that's <laughs> not true. Don't be stupid and get busted for ash. You won't like their prison. I guarantee you that. But, right. you know, it's, that's my problem with the film. It created that overall terrible impression, and I had to constantly defend the film against these charges. You know, well, if that's not true, then nothing in there is true. Well, no, actually, virtually all of it's true. They made some changes to make it a movie, but for the most part, they toned it down. My my escape. If people had actually seen the escape, they'd have said, "Gee, great film, except for that made-up Hollywood ending." Because it really was like a Hollywood ending. I went off an island in a rowboat in a storm and ran through Turkey for three days. I, no matter what happened when they bought the rights to the book, I knew, well, they'll make that ending, and they didn't. So I was so surprised when I first saw that. <laughs> so when do you, whenever you watch a movie of uh, this kind of stuff, do you say, "Been there, done that"? Well, I mean, I don't watch my movie hardly ever. Uh, right. I was in London recently at the ballet, and they actually did a screening at Midnight Express, and I did a Q&A afterwards. And it was, uh, yeah, it's a pretty intense emotional experience for me to watch the film. You know, aside oh, from everything wow. else, I, I miss Brad. I loved Brad. He was he was wonderful. and So I miss the fact that when I see him up there on the screen so young, you know, Time moves on. The film, it's immortal up there on the screen. Right. So, um, you know, a lot of bad stuff happened to you, obviously, there. And um, so one of the questions that I I thought about was, you know, nowadays we talk about young kids and uh, sometimes their their sense of entitlement. After going through all that stuff, and we talked earlier uh, today about, you know, it made you a very patient person, all the, mm-hmm. the waiting and waiting and waiting, and uh, with what you describe also as as little, you know, snippets of scared out of your out of your right. gourd to long periods of waiting. So yet you, you you built a lot of patience at, at one point. Um, but when you see kids that are like that, do you do you, does that upset you even more than it upsets most of us? No, I mean, I don't I don't get all that upset by much these days. But okay. I just think. You know, it's. I remember how stupid I was at that age mm-hmm. because I really hadn't gotten out into the world. And I don't know that kids are getting out into the world physically and, and metaphorically here because you're so locked into Facebook and all the social media things that I see all of the younger kids, younger 20s, 30s, even teens coming up doing. It, it sort of gets you out there, but it keeps you in your room while you're out there. So it's an odd connective tissue to the world around you as opposed to traveling and experiencing other countries. I did a lot of traveling when I was young. I mean, my whole generation right. did, you know, getting out onto the road. I don't know it's that easy to do anymore, and it sure seems like the road's gotten more crazy and dangerous, but I don't really know that that's true or not. But I think you need to get out into the world and see other people and other places and other countries and experience. You know, if at the very least you'll understand and you won't be 
totally taking for granted, as I did, this country. I, you know, in the 60s, I protested Vietnam and civil rights and then legalization of marijuana, which we're still talking about to these days. But, I mean, we right. protested all of that, all the bad stuff about America, and took all the good stuff for granted. <laughs> totally, I did, at least, until I lost it. And I lost it all mm-hmm. in an instant. People, places, uh, food, language, law, it, culture, all changed. <laughs> and I had to change with it. And forcing yourself to change is a good thing in a lot of ways. I wouldn't recommend getting busted and spending five years in jail to force yourself to learn. But, you know, you can get out into the world and see other places and not be so entitled. You know, if... if if these kids think, well, this is the way it is and it'll always be this way, well, need, you need to wake up because it won't be. I mean, literally, your life, your country, your law, your government, it's all in your hands. I, I miss the fact that there's not more protest. But I saw what we did in college in the 60s. I saw that we protested the wars and the civil rights, and I saw the results. They changed. We made yeah. things change. There's not as much as that now. I think, you know, with Obama coming in, there, was, there seemed to be a little bit of a groundswell of... of people moving and changing and you know whether your politics are on one side or another it's good to right. get involved with what you believe in because it's your country yeah i think to be honest with you it seems um the whole political thing uh with the advent of the right being so right and the left being so left it seems a little overwhelming uh and and i'd like to see uh the moderates come in with some strength and, and really and really bust things up again and start uh, you know and and, and start a, a groundswell i um, think it's i think it's a i think we're at what dwight d eisenhower wasn't the beware the military industrial complex well i think that's really what we're dealing with is huge powerful interests who are controlling the government and controlling the media not controlling it but certainly influencing the media in in ways and you know uh, you need a public that's informed and if they're not informed how can they make decisions when i look around and i see some of the people out there who are protesting and whether you again whether you're on this side or that side if you see somebody standing there in a crowd holding up a sign saying keep your government hands off my medicare you got to think, wait a second, does this guy not realize that Medicare is a government program? And then I think he's got the same vote that I do. All those people who I think are idiots, they have the same vote I do, and they're voting. And you're voting, and he's voting, and she's voting. Well, you need to get out and get involved. You need to express your opinions. You need to learn what's going on. There's a huge vote right now in California today, <laughs> right? All sorts of issues are up there. Young people need yeah, to get involved. Yeah, uh, a brain once stretched is really hard to put back. I remember I was in when I, was, I told you I was in the military, and I mm-hmm. think you might have been in the army. Were you not? Me? No, no. Okay, no. I heard some, in the book something about them going over your army record. Well, I had, I had, I went. They drafted me, and I went to Whitehall Street and took a physical, and uh, I, I fasted for two days. I, I got very stoned, and I went in and told them the absolute truth about everything I believed about life. And after about twenty minutes, the army shrink said, "Don't call us. We'll call you." And they gave me a one Y, psychologically unfit to serve in the United States. Is that why you ended up going to the? Uh, psychological prison? Uh, I had that report from the American uh, draft, and I used that report in 
Turkey to get into Bakikoy Mental Hospital because there was a clause in the Turkish law that says if you're judged to be crazy, they can't keep you in prison. But if you're that crazy, they don't let you on the street. They keep you at this Bakikoy madhouse. So I went to the madhouse to convince the people there that I was crazy, which most of my friends in the 60s wouldn't think I'd have a problem with until I got to Bakikoy at <laughs> Section 13 for the criminally insane and saw the competition. There's, there's whole parts of that film that are, you know, people say, well, gee, that madhouse, that was really made up. No, actually, that was very accurate. Oh, my God. It's been closed for many years now. I actually got to go back about five years ago. I got, back, got to go back to Istanbul, and we visited the madhouse and uh, saw that it's been all locked and closed, but it was a very bizarre thing to actually get back there. Wow. And that had to, that had to be a, an emotional trip. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, oh, I thought wow. again, not appreciating something until you lose it. I hated the prison until I got to the madhouse. <laughs> Out of the frying pan into when the fire. I, when I went back from the madhouse to the prison, I got. I said, "Oh, it's so good to be back here." And all my friends back there are looking at me like, "Good to be back here." Well, again, perspective. You don't yeah. know what you have till you lost it. Bakikoy was the bottom of the birdcage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be careful bad. what you wish for, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I was going to go just to back up. Um, what it, the whole thing about uh, being informed is so important. And um, I remember when I was in the when I was in the service, we were we had to go to Panama, and they were talking about at that point the the freedom fighters. Right, and they were telling us how the freedom fighters are fighting the government because the, it's so messed up. I mean, the government we put together, the CIA put together, right, right with Noriega. Right, yeah. Um, and there's a, all of a sudden they were teaching us that these freedom fighters, these kids, are for fighting for their freedom. And when you get down there, you find out these are twelve-year-old kids, nine to twelve-year-old kids, that have not a shirt on their back or food to eat. So the first person who hands them some food and gives them a gun and says. That's the bad guy. I'm exactly. the good guy. I fed you. That's the bad guy. They have no concept of freedom right. or what they're doing. It's like the, the guy who handed me food told me to shoot him. Right, right. And well. so, I mean, you, you kind of start realizing that the world is not all, you know, the media is maybe not always as cut and dry as you'd like. And there's it to a be. lot of media. There's a lot of media. So who are you going to believe? When somebody says this is green and somebody says no, this is red, and it's the same thing, and you're looking at it, and they're looking at it saying two different things, which is kind of what we have now. We have such a divided country politically, and there's a huge media divide, I think, too. And you, you're talking about the middle ground. I mean, the middle ground should be truth. We don't have yeah. a lot of real clear truth anymore where people can make decisions on. It's all tilted. It's all tainted and, and shifted. Very hard to make a decision. Well, you think with the Internet that you'd get more truth than ever, but it actually complicates the issue. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I love it, and I think it's a great thing in so many ways, and at the same time, you have no way of really dealing with what's reality here. You know, what is real? What's, somebody says something, how do, you, how do you know what it is? I guess you have to trust the fact that you listen to people's opinions, and it's like film critics. If you right. watch a movie and you like it, and they watch the movie and they hate it, you have to think, well, gee, what did I miss? What did they miss? And after a while, you don't listen to their criticism anymore. I think it's the same with politics. I mean, you listen to what people say, and you read, hopefully, you read what they say and listen to what they have to say, and, uh, and you make some judgments on them. And then you go out and vote. <laughs> you go out and vote. You know, and I love to hear that from somebody who's gone through as much as you have, because, you know, I think some people could uh, get get very... Uh, turned off by everything at that point, uh, and, and especially when we're talking about question everything. Not in a cynical way, but you need to question everything because absolutely. when you stop, you stop growing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, let's just talk about what, uh, what the heck is Billy Hayes doing right now? Well, uh, the Midnight Express Letters is out, and I've been doing... Ah, the new book, right. We still there? Yeah. Okay. Can you hear uh, me? The Midnight Express Letters is out, and uh, so I've been doing some publicity about it, and it's uh, pretty amazing for me. This is a collection of... These are the original letters I wrote home to friends and family and my girlfriend in the five years that I was in jail, and I used the letters as the basis for writing Midnight Express, the book, and I put all right. the letters in a box and put them in the attic and never looked at them again until my wife literally had me cleaning out the attic one day, which I hate to do, and I said, I'm not going to do this. I'm taking everything <laughs> out, and I threw this whole box of letters out onto the street for garbage collection, and she made me bring them back in the house, and I told this to my friend, who's also my lawyer, and he said, what letters? And the next thing I know, he was reading these old, moldy, 40-year-old letters. All the letters I wrote home to people, they kept. They gave back to me when I first escaped, and I used them oh. to write the book. So next thing I know, he convinced me to take these out and read them and annotate them and organize them, and it, it was a fascinating experience for me to go back and read what this kid, you know, I can be third person, what this idiot 22, 23, 24-year-old kid was writing about. Uh, it's pretty fascinating, actually. Well, you know what's fascinating? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I don't consider myself uh, necessarily a journalist or a great writer. I, I love to do interviews, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I have friends that are journalists, and mm-hmm. so I don't put myself in that realm. Right. Um, uh, but when I was, I went over the letters, or, you know, I didn't read the whole book from cover to cover, but I was going over a lot of the letters, and the same kind of you, the writing style that you have in the book is, you know, uh, you're a guy who can tell a story and make us see things, see a picture, and want to keep reading. Um, that's why the book was so good, and that's why they wanted to make it into a movie, obviously, right. <clears throat> because uh, you you can tell a story and 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 really bring up imagery. Your letters were actually not that different. You you can write a letter. It's what I do, actually. You know, I was a writer at college. I was a journalism major in school. And the letters, mm-hmm. you know, I, the letters, Midnight Express letters is never meant to be a book. They were always letters. They were my way of getting out beyond the bars where I couldn't go. And it was it helped me keep my sanity. And, you know, I'd, I'd write to my family, and but I'd have to write in a very different tone to them than I would write to my friends, you know, and I would have to write to my girlfriend. Half the book is letters to my my girlfriend at the time and mm-hmm. uh my family already had all the weight on them i couldn't you know write heavy duty stuff to them but right. with her i could write my heart out literally and she would write back to me and i'd get this touch of femininity in this cold masculine world and she was an amazing world traveler and she hiked in the mountains and raced in the iditarod in alaska and all these letters i'd, I'd live through her and she kind of saved me in jail and i when i organized them all i can really see an arc from this bravado early letters to people and this time and tears and years kind of weighted things down i can see the change in this guy <laughs> so i could be third person but it, they're so emotionally impacting that ah, for me to read them again just they instantly sucked me back i mean i was there i could well, i was going to ask you were they were they once again cathartic it was cathartic. Uh, I didn't want, I don't need any more catharsis, but I guess I do. I guess I really do. The first book, Writing Midnight Express, was such a good thing for me because I got home on Friday. By Monday, I was writing about prison. I wanted to forget prison. I didn't want to deal with it, but it forced me to deal with it, which was a terrific thing. And as the words stuck to the paper, the dreams that I was having stuck with them, and things got better for me in terms of psychologically. A lot of people, when I came home, 
strongly suggested I do some therapy. <laughs> I said, no, 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 I'm fine. I don't need that. Well, I kind of did my own therapy as soon as I got back by doing the book. And right. then I discovered acting. And the acting teacher that I'd met out here, a guy named Eric Morris, truly became my therapy and made me aware of and reconnect to some of the valuable lessons that I learned in jail. Again, prison was the worst and the best thing that happened to me. I learned things about myself in jail that were very valuable and it kind of helped me when I get out because stepping out and becoming this little mini celebrity and being scattered across all the media, it was weird. Uh, you know, it was good. It was better than being in jail. And, of course, I'm a ham and I like it. And I've always been a storyteller. But it was right. a very strange transition to come from isolation to being worldwide infamous, and it, it took its toll in a lot of ways, but it also, you know, what, what is it, that which doesn't kill us. Well, it didn't kill me, and it's made me stronger in a lot of ways. So I, Let me I ask have, you, I, you know, just because um, you, uh, you told me you met your wife at a con film right. festival 33 years ago. You've been, you've been married 33 years or 34 right. years? Right, 33 uh, um, years of July. Mm-hmm. In, in the interim, you know, I mean, when you, you come after going through what you came, did and then come back uh, a mini and then a major celebrity, I mean, the, the, the movie was uh, won a couple Academy Awards, yeah. right, for music yeah. and screenplay and right. uh, and uh, big deal. So yeah. from, yeah. did you ever have – was there ever a time uh, when you went from that the superstardom and a lot of attention to no attention and, and any anything there, depression or anything – or you just you stayed busy and no no issue there. Well, I've you know over the years I've I've always been busy doing one thing or another. I'm an actor and a writer and I direct theater. Well, there's a, there's mm. something for you. You want to talk about tough on the wallet but good for the soul? Do theater. <laughs> <laughs> but I just love to do it. Um, yeah, but you know great. I'm I have like everybody. I've got all my hopes and fears and dreams and stuff. And uh, but I'm the happiest person I know. <laughs> like I keep thinking now. Wait a second. I'm I'm healthy. I'm free. My wife still loves me. Nobody's beaten my feet. <laughs> All the rest of this is just gravy. So the fact that I'm waiting for a lawyer to call about a deal or, or make a money from a project or whatever else, it's like a little bit of perspective. It's like, hey. And I'm also healthy, which I have to thank uh, Lucky Jeans and, mm-hmm. and yoga. You know, I was started doing yoga just before I got busted. B-K-S-I-N-G-A-R's classic, Light on Yoga, was that classic book was in my shoulder pack while I was being standing there while I was being arrested. I had that book in my bag, and I've done which, it. Which one is day. that? Uh, it's called Light on Yoga. It's the original oh. book that was brought over from from India, I think in 1967, by uh, Iyengar, B.K.S. the Indian gentleman who's just turned 90. You wouldn't believe the stuff that he can do. He's 90 years old, and he does stuff. It's like, holy, how can he do that? He's so good. He's so healthy. And I'm healthy. So being healthy helps, you know, especially as we get older, because as we know, when you're young, you don't think about it, because you always figure right, out that's healthy and then things start to change and you know life starts to weigh on you so so what, what, what yoga do you would you uh, it, do you practice it's called Iyengar it's his name I-Y-E-N-G-A-R Iyengar yoga and it's a style a form of Hatha yoga that huh. um Again, physically, the postures help and the breathing balances you. And for me, it settles my emotions. I'm, I'm so emotional that mm-hmm. being in this business as an actor, as a writer, it's just it's an emotionally demanding business, ups and downs. And right. I try and use my yoga to balance myself, which is what I need. I'll stay reasonably sane. I'll, I'll take reasonably sane in this world every day. <laughs> and the yoga gets me reasonably sane. 
No, I, you know, I really appreciate what you talk about yoga, and uh, as I've had some health issues of my own, um, I'm trying to get back to yoga. I had started Bikram, which is, sure. you know, that crazy yeah, yeah, Nazi yeah, yoga, but um, I, when I was doing it, I, I probably felt more, most at the most healthy in my life. So, I, you know what? It, you just you do it every day. That's all. It just becomes part of your life. It's such a habit for me. I can't not do it. I mean, I can count on one hand the days I've gone out of the house without doing my yoga. <laughs> and I'm not a good person to be meeting if I'm not doing my yoga. I'm just too crazy. But it's an easy thing to start no matter how old you are, and you just do it day by day and it becomes part of your life. For me in jail, it... Um, you know, I was reading some of these letters talking about doing it in the mornings before the prison woke up when everything right. was quiet. And, again, I still, just hearing the sound of the, the, the hojas calling out, for me it's connected to so much quiet and solitude in the morning that uh, I, I love that sound. I don't like religion. I hold all religions, again, in equal disdain. I think religion is the source of most human misery. But that sound in the morning just brought me peace, and it, it still does, even when I hear it. You know, all the politics involved put aside with <laughs> crazy stuff. No, that's uh, no. That 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 sounds great because I'm I'm kind of the same way. I, you know, that whole not I'm spiritual, not religious. Right, right. Yes, <laughs> diatribe. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I was raised Catholic. Yeah. You know, they, what's that? Mm-hmm. Being Go being ahead. raised being raised a Catholic. You know, all the stuff that was taught to me. I, I left the church at about the age of reason and puberty, you know, at about 12, because none of it right. seemed to make sense. And I pretty much just abandoned all of it till prison sort of forced me to think and evaluate. And of course, we could, you know, I, I kept saying, you know, why, which I didn't really ask on the outside. I was just running way too fast and crazy. It's like, why am I here, metaphorically speaking, physically here in this place, in this body, in this situation, you know, in this mm-hmm. existence? And those are, prison forces you to think a lot or force me. When it gets personal, I always go third person. Force me to think a lot. And a lot of the answers were uh, valuable. A lot of them were disturbing in that I, it's not, you know, who am I? Why am I? What what am I doing? Right. What's the reason for things? And discovering valuable answers to those questions were all part of why, again, was the worst and the best thing that happened to me. Is being well, a good question might be to ask you. I mean, because you know they talk about becoming a you know um, uh, the foxhole religion. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, yes, sure. Everybody becomes religious in a foxhole, but yeah. in your case, death, you were in a foxhole for five years. Because, yeah. Did you do a lot of praying, but not necessarily? But you, did, but not necessarily. Mm, uh, not so much praying, because again, having been raised a Catholic and hearing all those words of prayers, none of them ever, ever meant anything to me. Right. Meditation and self-realization uh, became the value to me. And again, prison forced me to do that. It forced me to slow down and evaluate things and make decisions about things and ask questions of myself that I wouldn't have done running as crazy and fast as I was out on the outside. So again, I thought there was value there. I think a lot of people sort of find God in jail because it gives you time to think. But you know, religion right. is all based upon death. You know, what, we, we die. We know we die. That's all we do know. But what does mm-hmm. that mean? And then what happens next? Is there a next? I don't know. I kind of got down to real, real basics in jail about what do I need, what do I want, what's important to me, what am I willing to live for, what am, what am I willing to die for. And right. death became, it's there, after death, there's something or nothing. If it's nothing, 
For me, there's nothing to worry about. It's done. And if it's something, what is it? What could it possibly be? Because this, whatever this existence is, we're sitting here talking on the telephone, cross-country. Existence right. is amazing. It's just it's so <laughs> mind-boggling to me. So if this is what it is, is there more? And where is it? And what is it? I'm not quite ready to find out yet because I'm pretty happy here. But I'm yeah. sort of fascinated with what what happens and where do things go you know i've got theories and such but none of them are down with organized religions so i pretty much let let them all go their own way and i just find my own way yeah i think you know i think you can answer the question whether there is or isn't something in both cases it does <laughs> it it, it doesn't matter because yeah, if there's nothing, you. then like you said, that, that, then what does it matter? And if there's something but we don't know what it is, then again, what does it matter? It's, it's really about where you are right now. Well, that's it. Be here now. Be here now all the time. And if, if there is something, then all of these various versions of answers to that question, which are what religion is, uh, you can think about there's billions of people who think that it's this and as billions more people who think, no, 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 it's that. Well, Jesus, just basic logic is if all of these people think this and all of the people think that, billions of them happen to be wrong, or they're all right, or have, nobody knows anything, which is pretty much what I come down to. Yeah, What's that's right. That's kind yeah. of where I come down to. I, I, uh, I wouldn't say I'm religious agnostic as much as I try to be agnostic to all things. We talked about earlier saying question everything but not cynically. I really believe that when you decide, when you hear somebody who says, I have all the answers, I figured it out, that you need to run from that person because that person stopped exactly. growing and learning. What and the same it? with you. If you've decided that I'm going to make my opinion truth, um, then I think you've, you've stopped learning. If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. That's, that's the phrase. Right. <laughs> but it's the truth. If, they, if people start telling me the answers, I leave them alone because I know they don't know. <laughs> I don't know who does. If anybody does, I don't know if there are answers. But people who tell me they know the answers, I don't want to be around them. Yeah, I think it really comes down to what you really – and you made a great point about it, and that is being introspective and meditating on what it all means to you because I think that's, what, that's what's really important. The only reality that I know that I really trust is is love. And that's really what I decided. Ah, My reason for being is to love. And that sounds so simple and so trite, but it's the truest thing I know. And experientially, it's the realest thing I know. And, it, again, it's that heart. I'm touching my heart here, this heart chakra, this energy. Uh, right. My head and my balls lead me astray. My heart takes me true. <laughs> and it's, it's just been experientially uh, validated to me that if I listen to my heart and sending out love is the, really the only religion that I think is worthwhile. And it's taken me wherever it's taking me, and we will see what happens next. If one of those meteorites that seem to be floating through the sky hit me, I'm in my backyard now. If it came down and hit me right here, I'd try and keep some connection to you on the phone to tell you what's happening. But who knows what's going to go on. <laughs> There you go. Hey, listen, I want uh, everybody, where can we find uh, Billy Hayes? Where, where can we get the new books? Uh, where, where do you? Um, sure, sure. No, I've got, I've got actually a website that the, some teenager put together and then left, so I've got to get, get it fixed up better, but it's billyhayes.com. But the books themselves, Midnight Express, there's a, a revised edition, and more importantly for me, because I'd, I'd like to get the new one out there since I really like it, is the Midnight Express letters, both available um, on Amazon, either as print or as, uh, as e-books. Great. E-books is an amazing thing now. You can publish yourself, which I really like. You know, you have to promote yourself, but 
as opposed to having the the publisher do everything, which they first did with Midnight Express. I realize they you know they set up everything. We're doing it ourselves, which is kind of cool because nobody can tell you what to do or what to write. And as you said, reading the letters for me, that's my voice. That's truly right. my voice because it's was meant to be me talking to the people I love on the outside, and it comes across as a fascinating. It's almost a love story. My letters to Barbara back and forth, and then a lot of you know if you really want to know what prison was like. Read letters because that's the inside of it. That's you know that was never meant to be a book, <laughs> and now it is. And I even I find it fascinating to read what this kid wrote about way back then. What about you know again, kind of uh, the inside of the inside, right? But I appreciate you having me on the show. Um, it's been fun. It's been fun. So where, where do you go to BillyHayes.com? Where do you, where do you go to? to yeah, find that's, you? that's a website that's got a lot of stuff up. It needs to be improved. Supposedly that we're going to be doing that, but you know, I'm I'm you're very technical. I know that I can barely open my own emails. I'm hanging on to the digital <laughs> age by my fingernails, and I hear them cracking. So my website's pretty much it's just the latest version of what this kid put up for us. I don't go to it much, and I'm on Facebook. They got me on Facebook now, which I find good for you. Get you on Facebook. I avoided it for so many years, but now you kind of have to get out there. So I'm out of my cave, and I've got this book. Uh, I've got another book coming out in the fall, Midnight Return, mm-hmm. that I actually put out as an e-book, but I took it back in and revamped it quite a bit and going to re-release it. And uh, I'm doing a one-man show. I'm going to be at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival doing my one-man show in August for three days, which is pretty cool, because that's the, you know, the Edinburgh is sort of the, the theatrical marketplace where producers right. from all around the world come over to watch. And I've got a three-night slot uh, at the end of August to do my show, which is, again, me telling my story, riding the Midnight Express, talking right. about this, talking about this and, whole and, thing. And you're available to do other one-man shows if people want to or, or to speak, correct? I, I actually do lectures, yeah. I, I'm just beginning to get back again. I did uh, 103 colleges in the mid, uh, mid-80s mid uh, all across the United States and Canada. The Midnight Express well, experience from Turkey to Hollywood and beyond. And of course, <laughs> the, and, the and beyond part that I most like to get to. But I've been telling this story. As my mom says, you've always been a BSer. You know, I've been telling this story forever. And it seems to reverberate, and it, I'm amazed that it continues to reverberate down through the generations. I've got a whole bunch of young kids who have watched Locked Up Abroad, and uh, a lot of them are now just beginning to reread my book and send me questions. And it's like, uh, wow. Well, you know, we need to remember just how serious this whole drug thing is and, and how what what pain it's caused so many. Uh, thank you for saying that because that's part of I'm also part of the thing I've been doing is legalization. I mean, you yeah. can have whatever feelings you might have one one way or the other about drugs and, and, you know, putting people in prison, putting 23-year-old, 22-year-old kids in jail for marijuana, which is legal in some places. As you and I sit here talking, there's kids in prison doing a hard, hard time for pot. The insanity of that, aside from their own personal lives that are being destroyed and their families, right. but society is hurt by it. There's, there's a, a weakening of the legal system. Our prisons are totally crowded and overcrowded. The legal system gets corrupted. This whole vast, violent subculture built up around drugs. Drugs are cheap. They're plants that grow in the ground. If you make them illegal, they get expensive, and then all of the violence comes in. You make them all legal. You deal with the problems, because of course there are going to be problems it's with yeah. abuse. But it's, they're not the problems that we have now that there's a war on drugs, because that's become the problem. Right. Stop putting people in prison for smoking pot. That's crazy, and it costs 
cost us, just from a conservative point of view, the amount of money that's wasted on, on keeping people incarcerated for something that should be legal and taxed. We have so many economic problems. Tax pot, hemp as a plant, it's a hugely pro- productive plant. We've been oh, yeah, you know, and the, these, you know, I'm not going to go into getting into the whole um, deal with uh, big corporations and everything, but um, one of the interviews that's coming up, uh, Billy, is uh, one I'm doing on cannabis oil as a major, not just something that makes it good for cancer people, you know, uh, patients to maybe uh, get, you know, eat some more, get the munchies, sure. and, and, and not feel pain, but they're actually finding out that they're, uh, the medicinal purposes are, are really good for arthritis, for All certain cancers, and, and, you know, and you know as well as I do that this whole ridiculousness about pot has stopped huge industries from being able to make incredible other products. Yes, yes. Well, hemp has been, for 10,000 years, men have used hemp. It's a, one of the most incredible plants on earth, and it was only really banned in 1937 with uh, DuPont and William Randolph Hearst because hemp would compete against timber industry and the pharmaceutical industry, hemp would be a huge competitor. So they have literally mm-hmm. created this war on drugs starting back then, and it continues now, and it's become a social issue now, but the, it's being manipulated by the people who don't want it legal. It's changing. The pendulum is swinging. What's it, is it Victor Hugo, somebody about nothing is as powerful as a, an idea whose time has come. Maybe Voltaire. Right, exactly. One of, those, one of those guys. And the time has come to stop putting people in prison for marijuana. Great. Yeah. Listen, I, we're coming up on the top of the hour, and I did want to ask you, you I have a lot of authors that listen sure. to this show, and I wanted to just spend a second, because you did mention the ebook and everything, I wanted to spend a minute just asking you about, from the writer's standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, you being a journalist, a writer, you know, screenplay, the whole thing that you do, um, a lot of the authors are, are, you know, three million books are published a year, and a few thousand of them make any money. Right. Um, what what do you suggest an author do? Should they just write for the love of writing and forget about the money, or do you think that uh, that if they tackle it right, if, is there some kind of plan that you could uh, discuss where a writer might be able to make a living doing it? Does I that you make know sense again. Anybody can be a writer. You just get up every day and write. Whether you have something to say, whether you're good at it, whether you can make a living at it, that's a whole other issue. But you get right. up every day and you write, just for your own sanity, if nothing else. Making a living is very difficult. Advice, gosh, I don't know. Have other sources. I'm not being facetious. Have other sources of income. Have right. other people you can work with. Do other projects because just trying to make a living as a writer is really difficult. You have to get very lucky, which I did with the first book, and now I'm out promoting the new books, but, you know, they're not selling the way the first book did because I had this huge publicity burst. That's what it is. How do you get people, whether your work is good or not, how do you get people aware of it? There's so much media out there. Every day we're saturated. That's the hard part. That's why, again, I've gotten on the social media and I'm doing Facebook. They've got me a Twitter account. I'll never use it, but they've given me one. (laughs) I hate the whole concept, but I get why they're saying, well, we'll we'll twit for you. Well, twit away, but I don't even want to deal with that. But it's hard to get people aware of what your product is. Very difficult. So So would you you agree that... um uh, you know, because a lot of people say, and I've said this a zillion times, so I'm, I'm sorry to bore you people with this, but uh, the writing process, everybody thinks that's going to be the hard part. The, no. Then they think about publishing, that might be the hard part, getting it edited. That's something that people yeah. don't even realize is pretty complicated. Yeah. But when it really comes down to it, promotion is, you're only about 10% down the, down the journey trail because promotion is the key. Is that How do you sell it? Would you How agree you with that? It? Yeah, I agree. You have to. How do you, how do you get it out to the people who will read it and appreciate what you have to say? I. It's a very difficult 
question and to answer. I don't really have right. the answer. I'm trying. Yeah, I'm literally trying to find myself now the new modalities of of ways of getting your book out there because everything is changing between e-books and the uh, the social media stuff. It's all changing. It's very different than it was 40 years ago, at least when I first started to do this. So well, you know, you're doing that is correct. And, and just you know, bet- I hope so. Between me and you, nobody else, nobody else is listening right now, but. <laughs> um, <laughs> One of the things you're doing by getting on Facebook and stuff like that, when you start, what happens is when you start kind of grouping with people, mm-hmm. and you start uh, talking um, to people in, in a group, and you start building those kind of friendships, not not just friends for friends' sake. Okay, I like right. you, you like me. Right. But when people start, um, you're talking on the web all the time, and people start listening to you. You start building that group, and then you have the audience to start promoting too. So many people get on there, and they have they've written the book, and then they say, "Oh, gee, now I need to join Facebook, and now I can send this to my twenty closest friends." Uh, you know, I mean, you really kind of need to start that journey sooner about really kind of building an audience. Yeah. And luckily, you because of your first book, that's going to be a little more simple for you. It is. It makes it easier. Someone who doesn't have any kind of name value that they can put out there other than to themselves, obviously, and the people who care about them, it's very difficult to, to break in. Again, it's a huge amount of media bombarded on us all day, 24-7. How do you stand above that, that big wave? <laughs> it's hard to do. I'm up there surfing right now. I'm, I'm surfing the wave. I've got my new book out. i got my new show out. I'm hoping the wave doesn't crash on me, and I'm looking for shark fins out there okay. in the water. <laughs> Last thing is uh, I'm going to yeah. two things. First of all, where can we find about the ballet and find more about that? Because that's wow. just wow. Uh, wow go, uh, go to uh, Midnight Express Ballet, and you'll see it's Peter Schaufus, S-C-H-A-U-F-U-S-S. He's Danish. He's the director and the choreographer and wonderful gentleman. I spent a lot of time with him and his wife over there when, when we were there. And you, there's little bits and pieces and snippets of the ballet online. It's called uh, oh, wow. Midnight Express Ballet. Go to Google. Google it. You'll see. Midnight Express <laughs> okay. Ballet, and it's there. There's a bunch of stuff. Okay. And the last thing, mm-hmm. but not least, is I like to give uh, my interviews the last word um, with maybe just to impart a piece of wisdom or whatever you'd like to say. Tape it under your arms. They'll never search you there. <laughs> no, <laughs> there no, no, you no. go. No, no. Slap, somebody slap me quick. Um, and keep, what, what's the other one? Keep money in your crotch because they never look there? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> The only wisdom I have to impart is do what you like and know what you're doing. Know what you're doing means you take responsibility for your actions because you're going to have to live with the consequences. I found out the hard way, (laughs) but it stuck for me. So, you know, know what you're doing. Take responsibility for your life and enjoy every moment. Enjoy every moment. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank Everybody, you. Everybody, this is J.W. Nigerian with On Purpose Magazine. We're talking to the wonderful Billy Hayes of Midnight Express um, fame. And uh, don't forget to check out his new book. Um, what is it, Letters? It's the Midnight Express Letters. Midnight Express Letters. You can find that on Amazon and uh, Google Billy Hayes, H-A-Y-E-S. Yes. Yep. Not Billy Mays, not the guy who's selling soap. No. Nope. <laughs> I, I looked at my name years ago, uh, and it's William Hayes, and I broke it instantly. Ah. It broke down to Will, I am, ha, yes. And that's kind of how I've lived my life. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's not crazy. Thank you so much Thank for having so me much. on, JW. I appreciate it, man. All right. No problem. Everybody, we'll have a great again. day right. and an even better tomorrow. Thank you for listening to our Meta Media Group production of On Purpose Magazine. You can find On Purpose Magazine at onpurposemagazine.com. On Purpose Magazine and JW On Purpose 
is the property and is a trademark of Meta Media Group. And this audio is copyright 2012 and all rights are reserved.